Yes, I will. So imagine if you only had Boston Green and you couldn't get that crawler that is your. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. Um, this week, we've got one of the most controversial uh, topics in all of education that seemingly with each passing year becomes uh, more and more fraught with tensions and competing ideas, and that is the idea of school choice. Um, because this topic is so broad and large, I have two unhealthy experts yes. yeah that's, um, that's true with a, with a little tremble or got tenor a, in their voice we've got a wintry mix going on. <laughs> i like that i thought you were going to say you have two broad and large guests which i was going to take issue with but whatever <laughs> <laughs> and and moving forward that is that that is the never to be defeated uh brian hi y'all and roberta what's up um, so to get into this conversation, I think the first thing to talk about is the philosophy behind school choice, because even though it's about education, it really comes from economic philosophy in terms of markets and competition. So Brian, can you maybe explain that a little bit and clarify what that is for our listeners? Mm-hmm. I think the, the big picture idea is that um, if there is competition among schools, then the schools will have to be better in order to compete for the limited number of students who are out there to enroll. So in order to get um, more and better students into your school, you have to do more and better things like that ambulance is doing right now. Um, It's a real emergency in the situation of schools these days, this notion of school choice. Um, So um, really, though, it it comes from the, like, free market economics um, that um, uh, if uh, public schools just have students compelled to attend, they just, they're going to turn up no matter what, then, like, why bother to make, to to offer them a product, and that's with air quotes, scare Mm -hmm. quotes, um, that is uh, uh, compelling. You don't need a compelling product if you have a compulsory client or compulsory customer or students. Um, and uh, there's a, also kind of the, the other notion that you know free markets are will, will help us have free people, um, which is a you know a, a kind of liberal economic you know a maxim. Um, and so the idea is if we are in a free society, we ought to let people freely choose their way through it including schools yeah and i think one thing to just add on that in terms of talking about a free or an unregulated market in the last 10 to 20 years there's been this huge push that uh, school choice creates innovation because these schools are in competition and part of that is that public schools have become such government subsidized bureaucracies Mm -hmm. that they are unadaptable to change because of things like teachers unions because of things like district curriculums and so the idea is that if you take away that government, I was going to say support, but I guess maybe regulation is a yeah. better word, then in the idea of those who advocate school choice, that can lead to more innovation innovation in a more dynamic school system. Yeah, and as our perhaps dedicated listeners might say, and I say listeners because I think we have two, um, <laughs> is the that we, we've talked in the past about mandates and how uh, many different um, structures and strictures the government's put upon schools. Um, and so to, uh, to, 
to innovate and to you know sort of create new models for teaching and learning, um, you'd have to somehow circumvent those those mandates. And um, being in a charter school or a private school or any other number of non-state or non-district-based schools um, would um, offer that opportunity to just do things a little bit differently, whether that's the teacher contract or um, uh, testing or any number of government requirements that are on schools. I think that a lot of that on the surface makes sense uh, if we don't acknowledge the underlying assumption, which is that if competition is going to make schools better, that, that schools that are in existence right now could do better if they felt like it but don't want to right. or don't care enough right. to. And, and I think that that's a, an assumption that I, I sort of take issue with, um, being in a lot of schools and seeing how hard teachers are working. Um, I, I don't know that I, I, they are already in competition <laughs> with each other um, given the system of mandates that we have. And so I, I find the argument around if we had a free market and the kids would just go to whatever school they were most interested in or they would go to the best school that that would inspire the other schools to get better and that's better for everyone I, I, I don't find that completely convincing to me personally because I, I think it assumes that everybody knows better and just isn't trying that hard um, and, and if there was just a little bit of competition, they would try harder and do better. Uh, I think actually education requires not more competition, but more collaboration. Uh, competition means, oh, I found out the secret to doing mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z, my secret sauce, my patent, my special, uh, my, my special mix, and I'm not going to share it with anybody so that I can win. And if education is about uh, educating all people, um, then what we actually need is when we find those solutions, we need to say, I found something that works. Everyone, come try it. Come look at me. Help me get better. We need, in my opinion, more collaboration between schools um, rather than competition. Um, but yeah. that's, that's just sort of the, the counter. No, uh, but, but I think counter. it's also helpful. And there, there's two other things to build on that when you think about it. And that is, you know, you had said that if there's competition, other schools will have to do better. But I think what we've seen in the history of school choice movements and things like that, that not necessarily that other schools will get better, that they will be closed down. Mm. Um, And that, depending on the community, has often come with large costs that go beyond academics in terms of a community losing its school that had been there um, for years and complicating that. And then I think the other idea about competition... um, Right uh, on its face, the idea of competition is one succeeds while another does not, mm-hmm. and so if schools are in competition, that creates a arguably more volatile school system because mm-hmm. it's not that we are trying for all schools to achieve, but that they are in competition mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into some more of the nuance of that as we talk about some more examples. But I think it's helpful to think about school choice in the history of kind of American education and thinking when school choice, you know, has emerged because it's often framed as if it's this new idea that came about (laughs) 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. And that's not the case. No, you know, the irony is that, that 
way back in the olden days, you know, looking at um, in the mid-1800s, the primary form of schooling we had was private schools, mm-hmm. um, uh, religious schools or institutional-oriented schools, um, and, and schools that were created, private schools for affluent families, uh, mostly affluent white men, mm-hmm. um, were the primary source uh, of education. And it was, and this, this took place for, for decades um, for in, the, in the early 1800s. And in the mid-1800s, you start to see um, the Industrial Revolution and a massive shift in immigration. And suddenly we have lots and lots and lots of children all around who need to be educated mm-hmm. and, um, and a calling out of the public to the government to say, our children need to be educated, and it's your responsibility to do so, to provide a free education. The idea that only some people get educated is, um, is not consistent with our American values. And the government responded by saying, okay, we'll set up some compulsory schooling. And so just to clarify real quick, yeah. state government. State government. Not federal not government. Not federal government, yeah. no. But states learned really quickly from one another, mm-hmm. um, New York State being one of the earliest models, um, and they learned very quickly. And it started with... Uh, a compulsory public school, compulsory to third grade, and then a few years later it expanded to till sixth grade and then to eighth grade and then uh, eventually led to the K-12 model that we have right now. Um, but that was in response to um, the sort of seemingly um, disproportionate number of only some people get a high level of mm-hmm. education and a calling out that all people in the United States had the right to be educated, yeah. and therefore we have a response to public schools. And it's not, you know, um, it's not an American innovation, and it's not a, a, a necessarily an innovation per se. I mean, the early days of the, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order of the Catholic Church, um, as they sent their their priests out into the world, um, <laughs> running schools was a big part of their mission, mm-hmm. and um, they went out of their way to talk about mm-hmm. have the wealthy pay in order to offer this education to the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was striking this sort of like this social justice mm-hmm. balance there that um, uh, you know, goes back to the 15th century, mm-hmm. the 16th century mm-hmm. uh, in Europe. So. Yeah, so I mean... There's a lot of history with choice that we can't cover, but I, I think one of the touchstones is thinking about choice in the midst of desegregation mm-hmm. and resistance to desegregation because part of the resistance to desegregation was setting up choice plans where um, parents could opt in to sending their students to a particular school and then the district office would assign students to schools based on their choice. And what that did was two things. is One, it limited choice. to parents who either had the means, um, the knowledge, or what have you to interact with the state or city bureaucracy to be able to elect into those schools, but then also the state or city bureaucracy as an institution to then assign schools. So that school choice was mitigated um, in that way, often to recreate um, segregation that was already in existence and continuing going. Another famous case that we'll talk more about a little bit later, the voucher case in Milwaukee. And so the idea that if you won't adequately fund schools for um, predominantly communities of color that are low income, then we need to restructure schooling so that that money that's allotted for, uh, for education can be given to parents to choose the education that best fits um, their children. We can talk more into that, but so there's this rich history of 
kind of school choice being used in connection um, as a weapon for uh, maintaining segregation and for trying to enact um, equality. But so obviously after school desegregation, um, there were other kind of touchstone moments in American educational history that made this idea of school choice seem kind of more um, tantalizing, um, you know, because it was pregnant with possibilities. All right, well, we, I, th- I feel like we come back to it a bunch in the podcasts um, is this uh, notion of the, the Nation at Risk report um, and uh, the notion uh, that it put forward that our schools are failing. And dun, so, dun, dun. Yeah, so we need something to, uh, to, to bring that around. And, and not for nothing, Nation at Risk was published in the Reagan administration, um, Reagan famously uh, wanted to abolish the or, or disband the Federal Department of Education. Um, so this notion that um, a freer, um, more state-based, community-based, um, uh, a freer sort of competition among schools um, uh, it was one of the ways perhaps to address this notion that, um, well, these, these public schools are just kind of sinking, they're stuck in this morass, and um, one of the things that we can do to jolt them a little bit is perhaps make them a little bit less public, um, make them a little bit more um, uh, private in a way. Yeah, I, and I think we can also continue to return to it in the conversation that part of reason school choice has had such power, I think, is because it has gotten support from the left mm-hmm. and the right yeah. mm-hmm. to varying degrees and for differing reasons Different often. Reasons. But um, I think... The, the thing that I would say is that, and one of the reasons why education and politics is, so, is such a challenging issue is because there are parents on both sides of the aisle, mm-hmm. and every parent wants the best education for their kid. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you're not in the field of education, then you do your best to try to figure out what that looks like, and right. it's a very confusing and overwhelming task. So the idea that, <coughs> pardon me, the idea that I that that it's a possibility that school choice or being able to have a little bit more freedom about where my kid goes to school and that could give them a better education, which could um, give them a better life mm-hmm. um, and and give us a better country, is is really um, compelling. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's one of the reasons why you don't see this sort of like dividing mm-hmm. line on the left and the right about um, school policy issues or about educational issues that that that, that it kind of flip flops or that you see um, differentiated support on issues uh, along both sides. It's because parents we all want good. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, we can get to a common ground. We all want good schools. We mm-hmm. all want right. an educated public. Period. Mm-hmm. Right. How we do that is is the really challenging question. Um, yeah, and so I think that's actually like a great segue because <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> for, for how we do that, this idea of choice um, exists in kind of a multitude of ways. So, I mean, one that is probably common to most people that they're aware of is private schools, mm-hmm. right? And so private schools do actually use um, some government money to fund them, although it's often a smaller proportion the majority of the money for their budget coming from tuition or alumni donations or other things that might uh, push that forward. And tying in with kind of private schools, because they can be used that way, um, are vouchers, which I alluded to previously with Milwaukee and how vouchers work in theory is that the government, whether it's the district or the state government, says, okay, well, 
we have this much money. We give $5,000 to each school for each student. So instead of giving that to the school, we'll now give that as a voucher to a parent, which they can then use for educational expenses, whether that's transportation to send to another school, to pay tuition at another school. Instead of letting the government choose where that money goes, it's given back to the parent and the student to choose where they want to go to school. Um, so one thing that I think is also important to keep in mind is that does not mean that that $5,000 will get you to be able to go to school anywhere you want. So mm -hmm. if you want to go to a private school and tuition there is $20,000 a year, mm -hmm. then that $5,000 means you still need $15,000 worth of money for tuition to be able to attend that school. And obviously as you get into a more elite private school, and Roberta, maybe you can talk about how the funding works for different private schools, and that tuition increases, then that makes that less attainable for more people as if the tuition was $40,000 a year, you would need to supplement that $5,000 voucher with $35,000. And I think it's easy to think about private schools as, as if their own thing, right? Mm -hmm. that, 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 oh, private schools all operate the same way. But I think what we don't often understand is that there are lots of different kinds of private schools. Mm -hmm. There are religious schools that are often affiliated with either like a particular faith-based organization or a church or a, a group of churches, like, you know, for example, parochial schools or Islamic schools. Um, that you also have privately funded schools um, that are around sort of like certain values or corporate um, mm -hmm. corporate entities are now creating their own kind of private schools that are going to implement values that they have in education. Um, and so there are lots of different kinds of private institutions. Some are, mm -hmm. are sort of secular with just sort of like a very specific pedagogy. Um, but a private school stakeholders are primarily their parents and mm -hmm. their parent institution. Um, and, and so the, the stakeholders are the, you know, the institution that's sort of funding the school and the parents. If the, if the school takes no state or federal money, then it is not obligated to follow any state or federal regulations about mm -hmm. how they run their school. And that includes teacher certification. Mm -hmm. That includes making sure that teachers are educated in the field in which they're teaching. That includes um, pay, uh, how, how well or poorly teachers are paid. It also includes things like standardized exams or mm -hmm. state tests or other kinds of measures for measuring progress. And so a school that doesn't take any state or federal funding um, is, is responsible for the education of the students so far as their stakeholders uh, hold them responsible for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those who take some federal funding or take some fe state funding are, are sort of responsible mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to some state and federal regulations depending on how much funding they're taking. Um, but that being said, those schools whose, whose budgets are being supplemented mm -hmm. are able to offer lower tuition because their, their budgets are supplemented. Mm -hmm. And so a voucher might be supportive uh, to get a, a needy family into a private school that had a lot of a budget supplemented. But some of the more elite private schools mm -hmm. or some of the more high-achieving private schools or some of the more religious schools who don't receive federal funding are more likely to, A, offer a curriculum mm -hmm. um, or a paradigm in education that is not, as, that is not consistent with a public education um, and to do so with public funding. And I mm -hmm. think that that's one of the big challenges to the voucher system, right, is that we're going to take funding that's dedicated to uh, a, a public education and we're going to give it to a private institution that has very little responsibility to public values uh, or to following through with public regulations. 
something that DeVos was asked during her uh, confirmation hearings is whether or not with the voucher system she would have her administration hold um, charter schools and private schools accountable to federal laws. And, and it's a question that she uh, pivoted on mm-hmm. did not, and did not answer. It was sort of like, a, oh, we'll review the matter, um, but which is, a, which is a clear like, no, we won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think just maybe a little end point on this part of the conversation is that you talked about the more um, government funding that goes into a private school, the more accountability that they may have on them. But in a voucher system, in a lot of ways, that's not technically considered public money because it's given to the parent and the parent is then investing that money. So even if there is that increase in government money, there's not necessarily that increase in accountability or or government regulation. Um, One of the most well-known Um, and highly debated forms of school choice are uh, charter schools, which in a lot of ways are similar to um, independent schools, and we can talk about application schools in a second. And so charters are technically public schools that do not have the same, um, I don't know if the right words is regulations, confines, I guess depends on your point of view, that a traditional public school has because they are to operate um, within this different um, sphere to create these innovative educational gains. And so they still receive public money, and the majority of the money still comes um, from government money, and they are considered part of the school district which they are in. Um, but they are also subsidized by private entities and operate, um, not to be too flippant, but according to their own rules. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a charter, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and charters are... Um, conceptually, and many are, fulfill the, this vision of saying like, hey, I've got a new and innovative idea mm-hmm. about either a particular slant or a particular focus or a particular pedagogy, and we want to try it in this, in this small space. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for sort of a testing ground mm-hmm. um, around what uh, may work in different, um, in different communities or with a different value systems. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think, the, the intention, and I think it's a really laudable intention. Yeah, and so, um, you know, charter schools get a lot of um, attention, but I think, for me at least, there's a lot of intra-district choice that happens in bigger cities or inter-district choice that happens um, in often more uh, Republican-leaning um, free-market states that emphasize this ability to move uh, one student from one place to another. So, for instance, in a lot of big cities, whether you're talking about Chicago, New York, um, Detroit, if you're willing to call it a big city, uh, L.A., there are usually the top schools in the district that are application schools that can be chosen and also do the choosing Mm -hmm. um, of of who goes to where. Um, Increasingly... To go along with that, there are online schools that are now being offered as a choice, which (laughs) is interesting, uh, um, to say the least, but that's this idea that the district or the state will provide an alternative form in an online school that if you believe a traditional public education is not suitable for your child, um, for whatever reasons that may be, because they need to work, because... Um, they have emotional impairments that make it hard for them to go to school, that these online alternatives are a model. Um, and the last one that I just want to talk about real quick before we get into some test cases that I think is often lost in the school choice debate is the role of residential choice. 
the ability to choose where you live and thereby choose which schools you go to. Right. So often the school choice debate is um, articulated around urban communities and particularly urban communities of color. And I think that's a misnomer because we talk about often suburban schools as being great in a lot of ways, but the ability to have the socioeconomic status to move to the suburb, to own a home, to pay those property taxes Mm -hmm. is actually a choice that not everyone has, but that regulates where certain students go to school and where certain students are unable um, to go to school. Yeah, it's interesting. Some very high-performing school districts will actually see uh, their community demographics change Mm -hmm. because once the children graduate from high school, the parents often move Mm -hmm. because they were only there for the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting trend and one that I have a few stories about, but another time, (laughs) another place. Um, So I think to get into some of these test cases, uh, let's start with New York. Brian, can you maybe talk a little bit about the school choice environment in New York, and maybe if you're comfortable also talking about how uh, Mayor Bloomberg really heightened up this idea of school choice and competition. Sure. Well, there's a, a system at the at least at the high school and at the and at the elementary school level of matching, um, and I believe they use actually the same software to match students to schools that uh, medical schools use to match graduates to their residencies. Um, and the idea is after going through a system of of you know learning about the different options that are available to you um families can rank i believe it's five 12 uh, 12 cheese up to 12, up to 12 uh, <clears throat> schools that they uh, wish their child to attend um and then uh, the schools after receiving all of the information rank the students they would like to admit and then there's some sort of uh algorithmic elf work that happens yada 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 exactly and then all of a sudden hey congratulations you will attend PSXYZ um, and um, that's a, a that system was meant to be in play. that's citywide um, citywide and it's primarily for middle school and high school and the elementary level they'd still pr- pr- primarily do there is school choice but all preference is given to students in their zone school. Mm-hmm. So if most right. of the kids in the neighborhood are going to the zone school, they'll only take you out of zone if they have space. Gotcha. But in the middle school and high school level, yes, it is through matching, um, and you have up to 12 spaces. And the first one that you choose that also chooses you right. mm-hmm. is the placement that you receive. And these aren't the application schools even. These no. are just the, the schools. <laughs> and so um, uh, while that offers a, a tremendous amount of, flexibility or it's meant to um the the process is is really onerous i mean there's mm-hmm. a huge um uh, challenge to digest that to gather that much information to digest that much information and then to make well-reasoned choices um, <coughs> even though um the 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 district the the department of ed um offers a uh, you know supports to parents to help that get done it's still um quite daunting and um, the question of that remains, well, what happens to the students who don't enter into this process, who don't make a choice? And what happens to the students who aren't chosen by the school? Well, they end up in their, their zoned school. Um, but there's this, um, it, it, it is a, a, a hurdle um, that uh, folk need to jump, much like 
entering into a lottery for a charter school, mm-hmm. um, which isn't necessarily a thing that it, that happens automatically, isn't a thing that happens automatically. It's a thing that people must uh, elect to do. Yeah. So there is um, uh, intra-district choice um, mm-hmm. uh, within the, the high schools uh, in particular in New York City. Um, and, um, and then there's a, a com- vestige, as I understand it, of No Child Left Behind of... Um, school uh, children who are students who are in schools that are not making their adequate yearly progress um, have the opportunity to transfer to a more successful school um, but that's uh, like all of these things is uh, uh, wide open to uh, gaming by um, school leaders and by parents who are in the know and have means yeah. I think that the in the know part is such yeah. a is such a huge thing one of the things as a parent, at, I mean, so I'm an educator, and I like to think that I'm pretty savvy. Like, I can go online. I can read the DOE website. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, sometimes open my mail. Uh, you know, paying attention to these things. I, I want a good education for my kids, and, and I value that. Um, and also, I have been surprised multiple times at the process and the amount of time and energy and information there is to take in. And it starts a year, a full year, before your kids go to school. Um, you're, you're going to either meetings or doing open houses in October or November, the year before your kids are going to go to that mm. school. Applications mm-hmm. are due in January uh, for, uh, for specialized schools. And then you don't find out until March or April uh, what your placement is. So the preparation that's required... Um, if you think like, oh, my kid's going to kindergarten sometime in July or August, I'll register them. You're a year late at that point. You needed to do that in, you know, the registration for kindergarten opened in November uh, and, and stays open until January. And then it closes. And then you've got a spot if there's one available uh, at the, at, you know, in September. Um, so just the amount of information and how, and I think that that's a product of being in part of the biggest school district in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of kids, and so the process takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but how parents get that information and then how they negotiate that information, it's a lot, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of details. Well, and I just, you know, you think about also within that school choice, right? So if you are a family that is migrating or immigrating to the city in the middle of the year and you're already behind that, let's yeah. say you are immigrating from a country where English is not your first language, how much more tension or, um, I don't know, problems that makes for you in selecting a school that you want for your students. So while there's this idea of school choice, there are all these other factors that kind of regulate that, which can reproduce some inequalities that already exist. Yeah. One of the things I will say is that New York City has done a great job of providing schools that do have a lot of specialty options, and many schools Mm -hmm. in many districts do have schools that are specifically focused to hand, to mm-hmm. uh, welcome new immigrants, to welcome um, bilingual speakers, mm-hmm. um, that, and they have specialized programs with that as a focus. So while there might be 20 schools in my district and I can choose up to 12, mm-hmm. six out of those 20 might be schools that either have a specialized focus mm-hmm. or that are specific to uh, ELL students or that are specific to students with special needs or uh, some variation um, of other specialized programming. And so um, I think that there are that, that's one of the benefits, right? There are choices around there for kids that have those um, kind of needs. Um, and also 
those that sort of takes that big number like look at all the schools I can choose from and it starts whittling it down really quickly where you know when we applied for middle school for my son um, we had six schools on the list you know and so you know we had space for 12 we could only find really six that we were um, excited about about going to and one of them was the one he was already in (laughs) so yeah, it's a it's a complicated process for sure. And of course, this is um, you know in in a way the the, the choice of that is offered in this big district um, is a, a you know a, a luxury in a way. That's I right. mean, if you're in a smaller town, a community that has the one high school, well, that's where mm-hmm. you're going that's to high school, going to high school. <laughs> unless yeah. you can have the inter district choice, um, which uh, is uh, more and more available. But like other, I mean, just. The, the, the options aren't there for many, many, many communities. Um, or the state. tax base to right. support multiple schools. Right. Um, so I think also just hovering over New York um, for a little bit longer. Obviously, Mayor Bloomberg did a lot to make competition a bigger part of the New York City um, school district. And so charters have really grown in New York. And so a study out of Stanford um, that came out about a year or two ago found that from 2000, the 2011-2012 school year to the 2015-2016 school year, tracking um, similar student profiles in traditional public schools and New York City charter schools, they found that on average, um, students in charter schools performed better with 23 days of additional learning in reading and 63 days um, of additional learning in math. Um, they actually found that those gains were not at all in high school. Traditional public high schools were very similar to charter high schools in terms of the effect on education, but rather more at the elementary and lower middle school grades did they see the increased learning um, in charter schools. And by increased learning, obviously, in this context, that means standardized test Mm -hmm. um, performance. The other thing that to me is really interesting is that the gains, right, because averages are weighted from those that are not gains and those that are gains, came from um, charter school networks that had a CMO or a charter management organization, Mm -hmm. which in a lot of ways is akin to a school district Mm -hmm. um, central office. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that charter schools are performing better Yet, those that are most similar to the bureaucracy of a traditional public school are those that do better. I think begs an interesting question about whether charter schools are the innovation of that or the organizational alignment that allows for successful education because then that poses an interesting question. Well, what does that mean about traditional public schools? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that that model, in actually a lot of ways, provides opportunities for this, but because of other factors... um, you don't see that same amount of growth. I mean, it's the, the conversation is so hard, and, and you get five minutes into it, and you realize that it, it's not only complex, but it's also emotional, yeah. right? Um, I think that there are a few, there are some major challenges when we go to begin comparing um, the performance of charter schools with mm-hmm. the pr- performance of public schools, and that is that they operate under two completely different sets of rules. So it's sort of like, um, if you're gonna, if you're playing a, a, a game on a on a chessboard, mm-hmm. right, and you're trying to figure out who's winning, but one person is playing with checkers pieces and the mm-hmm. other person is playing with chess pieces, and you're trying to determine like who got the like one person got kinged, right, <laughs> but who won? Um, mm-hmm. it, it's similar. Um, charter schools 
have different funding sources, they have different um, policies that they need to follow, they have different levels of assessments that they need to take. Um, they are public schools, so they are responsible, unlike private schools, mm-hmm. they are responsible for um, state tests and, and, and following through with some of those state policies. Um, but also, they have much more control over their enrollment. Even um, charter schools that are open lotteries mm-hmm. and, and do not interview or require right. extensive parental agreements, um, th- th- you still have to be have enough know-how to get into the lottery. Um, and, and that says a lot about your family status and the value of education that you have and how much attention you're paying. Um, they have uh, much fewer regulations around dismissing students. Um, mm-hmm. If a student is not performing well, it, they can have them leave their school for almost any reason. Um, whereas public schools can't do that. Uh, so <clears throat> the, the student population that they're working with, the teacher population that they're working with, the policies that they're working with, the regulations that they adhere to, they are so different that it's, I think it's, it's really difficult to try to compare our charters in general better mm-hmm. than publics in general. I, I think it's impossible. Well, and I think that's why it's also important to point out that this study says on average that's right. because that's aggregating the data and so there are some charter schools that are high performing right. doing that but there are also a lot of charter schools that close within the first six months to a year that they're open and that's this is right. part of the volatility of kind of a school choice world that we were talking about in the beginning because you may be able to paint this picture with the average but averages are weighted by those that don't do so well and those that do. And when we're really looking at evaluating the performance of public schools, that is in and of itself a game that's played. As soon as schools demonstrate that they're not performing well, policymaker it's in the policymaker's best interest to change the to change the rubric, to mm-hmm. change the structure, to innovate again with this new way. We start from scratch or we close them down mm-hmm. before they get too too threatening. And so the the you know as soon as you're getting ready to determine who's the winner uh, in our chesser in our chessers game uh, uh, that we're, we change the rules and, and so chessers is a mix between chess and checkers for our listeners well, that yeah that. <laughs> uh, it's so complicated yeah and so I think we're only just going to further complicate it yep um, woohoo <laughs> because charters are not the only form of school choice. We had talked about vouchers, and you know I've alluded to twice now the voucher system in Milwaukee um, that occurred in the battle for desegregation and for more equitable schools um, for African-American students in Milwaukee. And so this is the longest existing voucher program in the country. It's been going on for over 40 years. And the, there's a lot of data and long-term results, and there are some gains, and there are a lot of instances of no gains or actually um, less performance than traditional public schools through this voucher system, um, and that the, there's been this increasing stratification of SES in terms of where students are going to school and their academic performance because of this voucher system. SES is? Socioeconomic status. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry, that, that wasn't as clear as the Chessers. I apologize. <laughs> oh. I'm just saying, at least I had prior context. Sick, <laughs> sick burn, bro. <laughs> um, and I think this is in part, right, because that school choice is limited by how much money a family may have in yeah. the school that they can go. And so by giving vouchers to families that can already afford $40,000 a year in tuition, 
they are now actually paying less money to go to that school, whereas for a family that that wasn't attainable for before, that still might not be attainable. And so that monetary wealth within a family or lack thereof can become an even bigger determinant. Well, can I ask a question about this? Um, So let's imagine that in a really small district of 100 students, Mm -hmm. and and the state is giving the, the money, the local money and the state money that's going to mm-hmm. pay for the education. If you're doing a voucher system, um, then every child gets funding. Mm-hmm. Every family gets funding for their children, and they can take that money to wherever they want. Mm-hmm. In the typical system, the funding would go to how many students are in each school. Um, but the state funding is fixed, right? Mm-hmm. If every parent who is going to send their child to a private institution and pay for it out of their own pocket, then receives a voucher. Doesn't that take money away from schools that would have received that funding so that, like, wouldn't that funding have gone to support kids whose families could not afford for them to go to those schools? Does what I'm saying make sense? Like, the, the amount is fixed, and so if you distribute it to the schools that are serving the public schools mm-hmm. that are serving maybe 80 per 80 students out of the 100 and you've got 20 who are funding themselves to go to private schools, then you have more money for those 80 students. But if the money goes directly to the 100 students mm-hmm. and, and then it's going to support families who already can afford to and would already choose to send their students to private schools, that just takes away funding mm-hmm. from the 80 kids who can't afford to go there with or without the voucher. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of like, um, um, it's a philosophical question about taxing, right? Yes. So the idea is, if I pay taxes, um, uh, is does it all go into this big account, this kitty, from which then I can withdraw my uh, my allotment, my share of this this pot to use as I like? I mean, imagine doing that with any other social service. Like, you know what? I don't want. I, I don't make use of the military personally. So I'm able to take my chunk of that money and go spend it on a thing that is more useful to me. I'm going to go buy my own guns, (laughs) or I'm going to buy a security system with that money. Correct, correct. And it's this false idea that the tax money, or not false idea, excuse me, there's this um, notion that um, uh, if I don't make use of the public schools by sending my students to them, I shouldn't have to support them with my money. Yeah. Um, except that public schools are in the public good. That's right. For the entirety of society and not just for, like, I mean, I don't have kids and I pay taxes. Right. So should I have my tax burden diminished because I don't, I'm not a draw on the public schools by sending children to them? Mm-hmm. I would say no. But I think that that's one of the challenges that small communities have when it comes to taxation and sort of like passing uh, laws or tax increases for schools is that some people who don't have kids say, well, I don't have kids and I don't see why I should have to pay more mm-hmm. um, for other people's kids to go to school. And right. this is this is the, the challenge. And I think we can talk about it as like school choice and I want the best education for my kids. But when we really get down to it, it's actually a question about money. Yeah. And about about where, where where does the money come from, who's who and who does it belong to, mm-hmm. right? And and what purpose does it serve? Right. And is it for every individual child? Is it for a school? And is it in the interest of the child? Is it interest in is it in the interest of the family, or is it interest in the interest of the public good? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in its founding, 
the public schools were supposed to be to have every child deserves a public education, a free public education, because that is in the public good, because we will be a better society when our republic is educated. Right. We will make better decisions, we'll have better critical thinking, we'll have better innovation mm-hmm. when, we're all, when we all have access to that. Yeah, well, I, so I just want to, before we get into our last test case, I want to, to build on this idea of, right, the common schools, and a lot of people associate the label common schools with that you know, even commoners could get the education and it was across all peoples, but common, in some ways that was taken as a given. What common really meant was that it was a common education that everyone would have to build a national identity. And so the idea that there wasn't an inequality in what kind of education was being received, that it was common to all. Mm. Um, so a lot of, that's the irony, right? Uncommon schools, right? Is one (laughs) of the charter school networks. Well, and so I, we have been bashing, I think, the school choice movement a little bit. Um, I think we've been critical of it. Critical of it. That's probably a better term. Uh, but, you know, one thing is when the public good has been used to also um, create inequitable outcomes, mm-hmm. yeah. then there, there is a need for change, and then it's a matter of how that change happens. So we can return to that, um, I think, in our final segment, but... For Detroit, which has had a ton of interest paid into it over the last two years, specifically because of Betsy DeVos um, and her presumption that she was going to be the Secretary of Education and the confirmation hearings and then that happening, Detroit um, has become large into focus because of her influence in Michigan and specifically in that school district. And there's actually a great piece from Vice that is in the show notes that if you have 20 to 30 minutes to read is really powerful and I recommend but some of the things that are interesting about Detroit is that the charters that exist there exist with very little regulation. Mm. Uh, New York City, for the amount of charters that it has, there's actually a decent amount of regulation, as is there in Chicago. But in Detroit, authorization is very easy to get. Your proposed model is very easy to get. And so what this has created, specifically in a place, place like Detroit, which doesn't have a large tax base to support its school system, um, schools are constantly opening and closing. Um, so we had talked about in New York City that um, charter schools with CMOs were more successful than charter schools without. In Detroit, you have a lot of non-CMO charter schools, but charter schools that someone has an idea, they want to open a school and they open it, they realize they don't have the funding, they overplanned and close four months later. Um, one of the stories that's in this Vice article is this school that opened and closed without even communicating to the parents or students what had happened. Students showed up for school one day, and it it did not exist. And so while we can talk about school choice and getting back to this idea of a freer market, at least in Detroit as a test case, it seems that when we reduce to very little regulation, that it actually creates a volatility that is unsustainable um, for students and for parents. Well, I mean, to to go back to the idea of, um, like, a free market economy, like, a the United States does not have a truly free market economy. Mm-hmm. I don't know that any nation does. Um, there is a balance between the freedom and the regulation that happens at the personal level, it happens mm-hmm. at the business level, the school level, um, where we give up some of our freedom in order to get some of the stability, for example, mm-hmm. of what uh, government institutions can offer. Um, and to the extent that... Uh, public schools, you know, district-based public schools 
are stable, um, mm -hmm. that has something to offer students and their communities in a way that a, you know, let's, let's uh, sort of, if, if I could say it in a pejorative way, a, a pop-up charter mm -hmm. um, that for whatever reason is forced to, to fold up rather quickly, well, that's a, you know, sort of another disruption in that child's education or in that, that family's life um, or in that community. So um, to the extent that uh, uh, government institutions are more stable institutions, even if they have their very many problems, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that's one of the advantages uh, that uh, perhaps a, a charters don't necessarily share. Yeah, and I, I think the government instability in Detroit, having personal experience working there, I mean, this vice story only starts to get into some of that, but you also have a Republican governor who has essentially tried to privatize that school district. Mm. Um, there have been legal battles. This is the same governor that oversaw the Flint water crisis, to put that in perspective. But <laughs> um, some implications going forward, I think, is if schools become more based on the school choice models... What does this mean for curriculum? Right. Because if you have more private interest or you have less accountability, who are making those curricular decisions? What are the accountability measures? Who determines them? And obviously something, again, that has increased in speculation and interest with the boss and her current role is religious-based schools. Do they Are they in line for more public money? And if they are in line for more public money, how does that shape the curriculum? Um, obviously science is usually the most contested subject in that, but I, I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, science is a... The, the, the whole religion versus science um, false dichotomy, I would say, mm -hmm. um, uh, is one that is there. But the other one is thinking to the idea that the, the, the government shall not support the establishment of any particular religion. So if we're spending uh, public money on a religious institution, is that an endorsement mm -hmm. of or um, some sort of uh, tacit approval of the that religion's teachings mm -hmm. by the government? Um, and that gets into some really you know problematic areas, especially when um, you you perhaps would be in a community where there is a um, by, by virtue of the demographics, a dominant religious group. Mm. Well, what if you have uh, a school of a uh, minority religious group in that? Mm -hmm. Will they be afforded the same protections as the schools of the dominant religious group? Um, I'm thinking here as you know, Christian schools mm -hmm. get a get a big thumbs up in general because of the being a predominantly Christian country, but. Um, there are plenty of other religious groups out there mm -hmm. that um, uh, would, you know, have their own that that do and and would love to have schools of their own and perhaps some government funding to go along with that. Um, so there's a, a really uh, kind of interesting question about um, uh, the, this intersection of religious freedom mm -hmm. um, uh, with all of this um, to 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 even just kind of hand wave the question of. Um, Will there will evolution versus creationism be taught? Which is sort of the, the you know the classic right. scopes question. So, I mean, things change mm -hmm. depending on what kind of school you're in, mm -hmm. and the the school choice conversation is crucial because of these convers because of the implications. It's not just you know divvying out the kids, but it is. You know, I mean, I just I just want to re-ask the question: Who's choosing the curriculum? Mm -hmm. e even in most public districts, there is, uh, or public schools, there's a lot of discussion and debate around what the curriculum should be. Most districts do not prescribe uh, one curriculum over another. They may um, have 
committees who select a textbook mm-hmm. line or things like that, but oftentimes that includes a lot of teacher choice and administrator uh, conversations. There are very few districts that I'm aware of that have like flat out regulated, prescriptive day by day curriculum. Um, I, but I think that these these are all the the key questions, and especially as you're bringing up Brian, the idea that if we have <clears throat> federal and state dollars, public money going to fund private institutions, how does that get back into the public sphere, especially if those schools are not held accountable to the same standards that their public school counterparts are held to? That, to me, seems like a gross inequity. Yeah, and I think standard. The, just hearing the word standards from you reminds me of a conversation, an ongoing conversation I'm having with someone about... Um, Common Core and the fact that uh, this person doesn't want her children going to public school because she strongly disagrees with the Common Core Mm -hmm. um, for a number of reasons. Um, So is opting to, um, potentially opting to homeschool her children um, rather than send them to the public school because of this notion of, I don't want my kids engaged with a Common Core curriculum, even though there isn't really one. Yeah, but I think that, like, in our, like, we do have a paradigm of choice, and if a parent says, this is the kind of education that I want for my child, I want a homeschool, I want a religious education, mm-hmm. they should have the freedom to do that. I think the question is, who, sh- who, who foots the bill? Who, exactly. foots, who foots the bill, right? And I think, like, my stance personally is that public dollars should fund public education. Right. And if, as private as a private citizen, I decide that, that the public school system is not what I value and I would prefer to have a religious uh, education or a, a, another kind of focused education for my child, I should be within my rights to do that, provided it is a safe space, mm. provided it is um, a space that, that actually educates children. Um, I should be able to have the right to do that. But I don't think that my neighbors should pay for me to have that preference right. Right? when there is a perfect, when there is a public option to me. And oh, I would never, <clears throat> would never, ever, ever presume um, that, that, that one negative example is representative of the whole um, but this this week, this story came out about um, the mudslides in California mm-hmm. exposed that a family had 13 children um, basically held captive mm-hmm. in their home uh, and under torturous conditions, and they were uh, identified as a school. Yeah. And there was no oversight or accountability or even any check to see if those students, if those children were being um, taken care of, much less educated, right. and how tragic um, how tragic that is, um, that, that in these little pockets we can just sort of do whatever we want. Um, and the idea that there's a possibility that public dollars could fund somebody's private interest in doing whatever they wanted without any oversight, these are our most valuable treasures, our children, and, and we need to, to treat them as such, and that, that does require oversight. Um, I want to come back to the funding question because I think that's also something that is more complicated than is made out to be in the school choice debate. But I, I feel like I have a unique perspective on the accountability measures having worked in a traditional public school and having worked in a charter school. And in some ways, the the accountability measures at the charter school were higher for me as an individual teacher than they were at the district level. Um, I was observed uh, once every two weeks. When I first started, I was observed um, by every person on administration, and then once a week before 
then moving out to that where there was constant feedback, there were going back and forth, there were small things that, um, you know, you were evaluated on that I wasn't in a public school. And in some ways that accountability, um, you could see where it would produce um, greater outcomes for students possibly and push teachers to do more in their job. But at the same time, without that union protection, it also opened the doorway for more subjective interpretations that could create instability in a classroom or for a teacher's professional career. And so I think, you know, it, it is fair to say that just because there are differences in accountability with school choice, the accountability could be higher. And, and I think from my experience, that's true, but I think it can also become more fraught with the potentialities of how things could be interpreted and how it becomes down to such a more personal level and now you're relying on the good intentions of everyone without a structure to counterbalance that and that can be concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of funding, you know, we had alluded to how that might work with school choice options. Does this mean an increase or a decrease in taxation? If you're talking about something like vouchers, is it everyone gets the same cut of money or is it graded by um, your family's income level to try to further um, equalize things or is that determined to be a redistribution of wealth that is that is not okay? I mean, th- these are the complex questions. <coughs> yeah, and I think that... that that idea of um, some sort of scaled um, voucher, kind of like a, a, a progressive tax rate, a progressive voucher rate, um, might be an interesting proposal um, because um, uh, proponents of vouchers and school choice often use that as a, as a, or use the idea that, well, just because you can't afford a private school doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed to choose one mm-hmm. as an argument that is made, which seems to me to be kind of mm, talking out of both sides of your mouth. Um, we talked a little bit about like that. So let's say you get five grand uh, voucher, but the private school costs twenty grand. Where is that extra fifteen going to come from? Um, well, what if there were some sort of a progressive voucher system where, because of our our particular uh, income level, my voucher is increased to twelve grand because of uh, the income level of the the household as opposed to another. So this notion that um, uh, everybody gets the same bit of money out of this educational tax pot of gold um, is uh, it's kind of same logic to me as the flat tax uh, Mm -hmm. and I think it's a problematic logic well but I think even that point that you raised so if that you know amount was to increase from 5,000 to 12,000 that would actually mean for you to effectively do that that you would have to increase whether that is property taxes or state taxes for that to happen. And many people who are making the school choice argument are actually also arguing for the decrease Mm -hmm. in taxes. So it seems a system that's incompatible um, or at least unable to sustain itself. Yeah, and when you really divide it out, you know, we talk about a per-pupil allocation, but when you're combining large groups of students and creating school-based budgets... Like, there's a lot that goes into it rather than just, like, this individual student. And, you know, the, I, I just, I can't, I can't see it um, that with the bureaucracy and the level of details. How, how soon would you have to decide that you're going to go to that school? Mm-hmm. S- schools are staffed based on student enrollment, right? It's the X number of students equals X number of teachers. So at what point do we know how many 
how many seats we have open if it's all free choice and I can just take my voucher anywhere I go and like oh your kid can come to school the next day mm-hmm. I, I just don't I haven't seen or heard a, a, a really fully functioning plan to mm-hmm. make that really work with a student to student basis um, ultimately I think that when you group all the students and you place it into funding for school budgets that makes sense you can bet you get more bang for your buck Right when I put it all together, when it, when we pool that funding, that everyone gets more resources. When we divvy out that funding, everyone gets less. So they it may, makes makes you feel more individualized. I've got this particular amount of funding, but you can't do anything with that. It's like going to the store right now with a quarter. Like what can you buy with a quarter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Pool your money with your four friends. You can get something to split for a dollar. Mm-hmm. But you can't. You can almost buy nothing with that. And and. I haven't seen a compelling argument. Yeah, and so we have more planned, but I think it's getting to that point where we're just going to have to tease you to come back next week um, as we talk about some more things that are possibly related to this conversation, but also pushing forward, and maybe we'll come back to revisit this topic. Mm -hmm. But as we end our discussion for today, are there final thoughts that are bubbling for you as we think about this conversation and think about where to go? Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is taking us all the way back to the beginning of the conversation and this notion that uh, competition will drive innovation and improvement in the schools. And um, a, uh, a fun little expression that, that folk like to use around this is that a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and so if we um, sort of the, the push to uh, the competition is the tide and then this, the schools will the, that are falling behind will have to like, rise up to meet that. Um, I would rather see the tide be improvement of the public schools um, and to say that um, if we push, if we fund and support our public schools to, to, to do more and better work, um, then uh, let's let that be the, the tide that lifts up all the other schools and um, um, society in general. Um, I, I think Roberta's point about that um, if not for competition, teachers would be working harder. It's just this incredibly, um, um, it's just like a cold attitude to take. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's, a, it's, you know, a classic critique of, uh, of, of socialism that like, well, if you don't have any sort of, if there's no reason to compete and scratch in the world, you're not going to do your best work. But um, um, while there certainly is this dominant, paradigm of uh, 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 liberal individualism in, in America that comes from this like spirit of capitalist competition like um, I, I don't know that it has to be that way I don't know that's our only um, uh, only motivation to which we can appeal I think we can appeal to as a, as, as a great American once said the better angels of our nature mm-hmm. um, in the public schools I think my final thought would just be this is really, really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. It's really complex. It's really hard. And it's hard not to have this conversation thinking about one's own children or one's own personal experience with education. Um, and, and so quickly we get from, you know, wanting to do good things for kids into, like, taxes and, po- and politics. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's just it's such a short line with this topic um, from one point to the other point. Um, but I think that, like, Everybody wants, like, starting where we have common ground. We all want to have a well-educated society, um, and, and there are lots of different ideas about how to do that. Um, I have mad respect for 
private schools that want to educate their their students and their families within um, a tradition, whether that's a faith-based tradition or um, an an innovative tradition that they're building or um, a particular lens on the world. I think in America, we need to be able to honor the sort of diversity of ideas that we're better as a result of it. And also, private is private for a reason. It's saying it's private because we don't want to conform to to the public sphere we need to stand out to stand different and so then I, I struggle then with the with the, the the through line with that to say but but give us the money to do it mm-hmm. um, but that being said like mad respect for private schools mad respect for charter schools who are doing um, you know doing their best to Absolutely. try to support students in, in more innovative ways and experiment with with, with new learning opportunities um, and and like deep respect and commitment to our public schools. Um, I am a product of uh, public schools um, all the way, uh, K-12, and then went to a state college. What's up? Go Lambs. Um, <clears throat> and I could not be prouder um, of the education that I received, and I couldn't be prouder of the schools that I've taught in and the schools that I work in today. Um, it's something that like I believe really passionately in. All my kids go to public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I really just I really believe that we need to be working together to um, answer the, the these big important um, educational questions um, rather than trying to compete. I just that collaboration over cooperate uh, over competition I think is key for me. Yeah, I stealing the words out of my mouth. So I guess the one other thing that I will add is that I, again I think often this school choice debate and charter expansion and voucher systems often exists in poverties that or communities that are in poverty um also like specifically communities in poverty that are of color and i think there has to be a reckoning that okay if there are not as highly functional schools as there should be, what has made them so? Yeah. And often it is not teaching. It is often social <coughs> inequalities that have been um, perpetuated and deepened by public policy. Yeah. And there has <coughs> to be a reckoning with that because otherwise, if you have competition, you are always going to have the, the goal of stratification within an educational system. It, it, it's, it's foolish to think that if, competition is the goal that there will be equality Mm -hmm. and so I I think that that's a paradox that has to be wrestled with um, in this debate and I think there's plenty to be learned from public schools and there's some to be learned from charter schools and other forms of school choice but until we get rid of that underlying tension or reckon with it the conversation ends before it begins yeah so tune in to next week to another engaging topic that is (laughs) looking for the right word there that's filled with all kinds of meanings and problems and we'll talk to you then we'll talk to you then and thanks for sticking with us through the wintry mix and the coughing you're true 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 partners and the ambulance (laughs) two part if you're still here we love you now there's a message five minutes from now stay tuned (laughs) bye